great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Taijong on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing the lifting of quarantine regulations for arrivals from next Thursday, but some rather iry feelings that taxpayers here will have to shoulder the bills for foreign nationals who get sick well, when they're here. Some local election news, that being the new power party calling for the government to ensure that people in isolation with the coronavirus can still cast their ballots, and two of the Taipei mayoral candidates unveiling their pet policies. Experts investigating public art plagiarism accusations at a Ministry of Justice unit office, and illegal structures making the news as one that takes the real biscuit popped up in Zhanghua. But we'll begin with next Monday being National Day here in the ROC, and on Wednesday of this week, Legislative Speaker Yoshi Kun said the celebrations will be focusing on demonstrating Taiwan's resolve to defend itself in the face of continuing pressure from Beijing. Yo, who heads the Double Ten Planning Committee, told reporters that the theme of this year's National Day event is defending our land together. And he said that Taiwan must let the world see that its per- perseverance and strong self-defence capabilities at a time when the island is facing relentless bullying from China. Now, Yo made those comments as Defence Minister Cho Guo-chung said that China China's flying of fighter jets into Taiwan's territorial airspace will now be regarded as a first strike against the island. Speaking at a legislative committee hearing, Cho said that the military has its red line when it comes to national defence and the armed forces will definitely launch countermeasures once that red line is crossed. The defence minister did not elaborate on what those countermeasures would be, but he did note that the definition of an invasion is not just limited to artillery bombardments. Cho also warned that China's breaking of a tactic understanding by sending its air aircraft over the median line of the Taiwan Strait means that it will now be difficult to return to that previous situation. So Brian, of course, National Day next Monday, but this is going to be the big defence National Day. Yeah, it's unsurprising given this timing. And I think in past years, particularly, China has stepped up military threats directed at Taiwan around National Day. Uh, This also has to do with its own National Day, which is on October 1st. But I mean, for example, last year, one saw the increase of air incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone to near daily basis. And this, of course, takes place in the climate after the Pelosi visit. Uh, And so I think then there will be focus on defense. But I think particularly then a lot of eyes will be on what President Tsai says during her address on National Day. What will she vow to do, for example, to strengthen defense? And I think really analysts will be looking for hints as to what the uh, plans for the Tsai administration on defense are at present. Yes, I, I, I think a, a lot of eyes are going to be on what, uh, as Brian noted, uh, what Tsai says during her Double Ten address. Uh, because, uh, I mean, right now, the anvil is hot, basically. I mean, the, there's a lot of momentum, there's a lot of public pressure, and it's leached into the local elections in a way that it never has before, is that right now things could be done, things uh, could be passed by the legislature, things could be proposed by the uh, the executive UN that could actually make substantive and very important uh, it, changes to the way that both the, the the government, the military, and the public has to approach uh, national defense uh, could be proposed. And 
And right now, a lot of the public is behind this on a lot of uh, public opinion polls. So the question is, what will she propose? What will the government try and enact? And will she actually use this moment, which right now appears to be, for lack of a better word, kind of a golden moment for the government to really move forward on trying to strengthen national defense measures and to try and get the public and uh, the uh, and the government behind in kind of a whole of government approach uh, behind a you know a, a new way of thinking about and approaching defending against China. So you know how is she going to lay this out? And normally she's pretty cautious, but every once in a while she surprises and comes out with something bold. So the question is. You know, how, what will she come out with on Double Ten Day? Well, Brian, maybe can we just expect more of the same? When she's, of course, she's done it before. Taiwan needs to strengthen its defence, and we're open to dialogue with Beijing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there'll be some version of that because it was, does come up year after year. Uh, the question then this time is: Will there be anything new, or will there just be old wine in a new bottle? Uh, it's a time potentially to announce new ideas. It could also be floating a trial balloon, for example, introducing an idea to the discords and seeing how it ticks. And I think particularly it is complicated as well for the DPP because this is a month before elections. And so ideas being introduced that may be unpopular, such as for example, extending the draft, might not be the best timing to introduce that at present then. And so I think that's like another thing to watch. Um, I think particularly then some of it will touch on the kind of debate regarding, for example, asymmetric versus symmetric warfare, or let's say strategic ambiguity versus strategic clarity. I mean, that might come up in some way. Uh, I think there will at least be reference to, for example, the strengthening of relations with Taiwan and the U.S. and with other countries. Uh, but I think this is also an opportunity for Tai to signal to the domestic public, but also international uh, observers and potential allies of Taiwan. And Donovan, of course, do you think there'll be another unannounced trip by some American officials ahead of the National Day celebrations? Um, it's entirely possible, um, but I... We'll just have to see. I mean, there's there's really no way to predict this right now. I mean, it's too short notice, to, <laughs> and I haven't seen any any chatter anywhere online, uh, or you know, through channels that, that I have that something is you know unexpected is about to happen. I mean, I'd be I'd be amused if they had, for example, just like, oh, we have a mystery guest, and they announced it ahead of time. There's like a you know cutout or something, and they put this on their messaging. Um, yeah, it's a question. I mean, it's always a question if there will be visitors. I mean, one does see the usual diplomatic guests uh, that's focused during COVID. One has seen less of that. But travel is also reopening in the same time frame. And so there's that, um, except for that National Day is three days before the lifting of border controls. And also this week, it was the U.S.-Taiwan defense meeting in Richmond, Virginia. And U.S.-Taiwan Business Council head Rupert Hammond Chambers came out and said basically, Brian, that the Taiwan Policy Act is not going to pass this year. So this is also what uh, some Tide administration officials have said to the media, that they don't expect it to actually pass. But this does change the terms of the debate in that sense, and I think particularly regarding how some of the language was watered down because of pressure from the executive branch of government for the Biden administration itself. Uh, also, the potential of responses from China. But I also think that it is significant either way. If it doesn't pass, uh, some of the ideas talked on, for example, building up a stockpile of munitions in the region, for example, those ideas will still be around for some time to come. And so I think there will be some discussion of these uh, kind of 
terms of debate or ways the U.S. could concretely aid Taiwan. And I think this also just dives back into the debate about symbolic versus substantive support for Taiwan, things that actually get things done or things that show support. So, Donovan, were you, were you surprised when you heard that the Taiwan Policy Act wasn't going to pass? No. Um, I mean, these, these kinds of things take, take a bit of time. But it, there's a lot of talk of them uh, tucking that into it, into a, you know, a national defense bill, uh, tucking into something else, and then passing it under the cover of another bill. So it may yet pass in a disguised or, you know, a partial or, you know, in a form that doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't go under its own name. In other words, you know, the, you're passing it under the uh, National Defense Act uh, or, you know, the regular military bill. So that kind of thing, you see this a lot with a lot of these kinds of pro-Taiwan things. They Instead of passing it under its own name, they tuck it in under something else and then push it out and, you know, it gets passed. But usually the executive branch has watered down some of the provisions. And so the military aspects, which are really actually was key about that bill, uh, which, which of course, includes the uh, $4.5 billion uh, up to six point five billion uh, in military aid. There's loan, which is a combination of loans and grants. Um, if that goes in, if they pass it as part of the defense funding bill, then it becomes something that it's stripped of a lot of the symbolic issues, which the executive branch and the Biden administration has already pretty made pretty clear they want to strip out. And then you get the substantive core which is the military parts of it, if they put that into, a, into the funding bill for the military, that just makes it a whole lot easier to fund. And there's not a lot of people in the U.S. Congress on either side uh, which would oppose that. So this may be a, uh, th- you know, so getting that passed through that seems to be the, the big hope right now. Of course, Brian, and of course, this week the defence minister came out and spoke of that $6.5 billion. Yeah, that's right. And so it's not surprising. I mean, this is not totally new. Um, there's some measures that are new and some that are not. And I think that's kind of what's interesting about the bill. But I think particularly what we've seen is that maybe similar to the Pelosi visit, because of this was being reported on ahead of time, uh, it was discussed so long, and now there's talk about how China would react. And so maybe that is not what the Biden administration necessarily wants, for there to be a lot of discussion of the bill in a way that potentially prompts reprisals. But I think that kind of points to a different uh, imperatives between the legislative and the executive sometimes, and that the executive doesn't want discussion, for example, of these measures, because that opens the window for China to respond. And China's obligated to respond if everyone keeps talking about how it will have some kind of reprisal, how this is dangerous, that kind of thing. But then actually, uh, members of Congress and, and people elected representatives often want to tout this as an accomplishment for domestic politicking. And so I think there's a kind of conflict of interest or, or of uh, imperatives there. Moving on now, and the government is set to lift its quarantine mandate for arrivals next Thursday. Under the Zero Plus Seven protocol, no quarantine will be mandated, but travellers will be required to observe seven days of self-initiated epidemic prevention in line with the new protocol. Travellers will be allowed outside during the seven-day period once they obtain a negative test for the coronavirus after taking a rapid test every two days. Now, the government is also capping the number of arrivals at 150,000 per week. Now, the new policy is 
being seen by tour agencies and individuals rushing to purchase tickets as a great thing as people are looking to leave the island and will be able to come back without, of course, having to quarantine. And the Bureau of Consular Affairs this week says that the number of passport applications and renewals has soared since the government first announced that quarantine regulations for arrivals would be lifted late last month. Now, the Bureau says it processed 386,000 passport applications as of September the 30th this year and there's now been an average of around 3,000 applications per day. Daily applications increased to 4,800 on September the 26th before rising to 5,800 on Monday of this week and the Bureau says it's now been seeing an average of 5,300 applications over the past week. Now, while the government has been touting the merits of Taiwan's grand reopening, so to speak, it hasn't pleased everybody as it appears that foreign nationals who test positive for the coronavirus after they arrive here will see their initial medical costs covered by the government, read taxpayer. And that, needless to say, has left some people rather angry, as, of course, people from Taiwan, when they travel overseas, the governments in the countries that they will travel to won't necessarily be in want to help them with their medical bills, Brian. Yeah, so it's one of those, uh, I think, contradictions there. I mean, I think it's not surprising that, particularly during election season, people will pub- uh, target this in terms of the Tsai administration, and it becomes part of the general critiques of the Tsai administration's COVID policy. Uh, I mean, the number of rivals that do have COVID, it's comparatively low, I think. So it's not going to overwhelm the uh, system, let's say, with an influx of people coming in. But I think with border reopenings, one does have this vision sometimes of that the public perceives this people uh, rushing into Taiwan that will overwhelm the system. And that often raises a lot of, uh, for example, concerns about that are vaguely protectionistic or just fear of outsiders and that kind of thing. I, I mean, here's the thing. is If you fundamentally boil it down, they say 99-plus uh, percent of people who get uh, Omicron variant uh, COVID now are asymptomatic or have mild symptoms. And when you're talking about 150,000 people, if you strip that down, the vast majority of those people who are going in and out are going to be Taiwanese, uh, returning Taiwanese from overseas. And so the number of actual foreigners who come in and actually get serious COVID are staggeringly low numbers, probably. We're, we're looking at dozens, maybe. Um, a, a very tiny number. And right now, the CCC appears to be more and more seeking to justify its own existence because as it moves into a period where, you know, right now the COVID cases are probably peaking, uh, assuming its own estimates are correct, once that starts to ramp down, there's not really a whole lot of justification for the CCC to continue to exist. And so it's coming up with, I think, a lot of these rulings and you know opinions and things that it's going to enforce and so on and so forth to keep justifying itself and to its continued existence. But at some point, I think within the next few weeks, month or two months, I think that its very existence is going to come into question. Um, for example, they recently they started talking about how they might uh, in, enforce mask rules well into uh, after you know after winter, but then they came back and said maybe only into November. So you know, but the question there is, they're the central epidemic command center. 
Now, the flu is actually technically not within their purview. There is actually a, a very, you know, there, there is definitely a case to be made that, you know, enforcing mask regulations uh, through the winter would be very effective in bringing down flu cases and protecting public health and so on and so forth. But they're the Central Epidemic Command Center. The flu is not an epidemic, which would mean that they are they have extended their remit well beyond what they were created to deal with. So they're going to have to start answering these kinds of basic questions. And I kind of think that right now that's kind of what they seem to be focused on is coming out with things that are low cost, low impact, that continue to justify their existence now. But I think that in the back of their minds, I think they're they're beginning to realize that they're going to have to start contemplating their, the end of their own existence. Because, of course, Brian, it was established, the CECC was established because they can actually quarantine people. They can court and initiate quarantine measures. But if you're scrapping all quarantine measures, do you think there'll be a public call for them to be scrapped and it will go back to the Ministry of Health? It's a question. I mean, I think that particularly now the CCC is in the public consciousness. And so it might stay in that respect. It might be politically expedient for administrations to maintain it in some capacity because you can use that as a mechanism to uh, invade on the public regarding, for example, diseases, uh, pandemics, epidemics, that kind of thing. Um, and so there's definitely that. I mean, there definitely is a case in which bureaucratic institutions come to exist and justify their own existence. Uh, but I think quite a lot is political here in regards to the elections. And so there's a question that you might get some backlash if you relax the max mandate too soon. I mean, there's always the question that we asked before uh, that the border before the border controls were lifted is that would they actually wait until after elections to do this because of the fact that they might see backlash? I mean, I think particularly regarding the lifting of measures, uh, we'll see a gradualist approach because if you do have an uptick of numbers, then the Italian administration will potentially take a hit from that. And so the Italian administration does want to maintain a kind of sense of stability rather than letting the situation go out of control, which the KMT would leverage on, and particularly because the Taipei race often sets the tone for the races in other parts of the country, and so the former Minister of Health and the head of the CECC, former head, Chen Shijong versus Jiang Wanan and Vivian Huang. In that case, then, well, I mean, the DPP has really hinged a lot on its COVID uh, record, and so I think that's another consideration. And Brian, will you be rushing off to Japan? No, oh, that's leave. a good question. I mean, it'd be a nice take a vacation at some point. I mean, Japan, I actually was planning to go to Japan right before COVID started, and then that did not happen, so potentially. And Donovan, will you be rushing to buy an air ticket? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, I, I can barely afford to go to Taipei. Well, there you go. Put a damper on that, didn't you, mate? Anyway, moving on now and in some election news this week. Well, in some coronavirus-related election news, in fact, the new power party called on the government to ensure that people forced to isolate after testing positive for the coronavirus must not be deprived of their right to vote in November's local elections. Now, according to party chairwoman Chen Jiahua, voting is a basic right protected under the Constitution and the government should make every effort to allow people in isolation to cast their ballots. Now, NPP lawmaker Claire Wong said 
says based on the current coronavirus numbers and the seven-day self-isolation period, she said hundreds of thousands of people might be unable to cast their ballot on election day. And she stressed that those numbers are especially important this year because, of course, the election includes a question on ratifying a constitutional amendment to lower the voting age from 20 to 18. While party lawmaker Cho shen said that Taiwan should look at how other countries have handled elections during the pandemic. And Cho cited South Korea as saying that a special time slot was reserved for people with the coronavirus to cast their ballots there, while in Japan, people with the coronavirus were allowed to request a mail-in ballot up to four days before the elections. Now, the NPP also pointed out that the government failed to take similar measures ahead of last year's referendums. And the party says it also plans to submit a proposal to both the Central Election Commission and the Central Epidemic Command Centre, laying out ways it believes could protect the voting rights of people with the coronavirus. So, Brian, this is obviously a bit of an issue. If you're sick, you can't go and vote currently because you yeah, can't go right. out. Yeah, and so, I mean, particularly with cases around 50,000 currently, I mean, you look at a week, for example, of quarantine, and that's like 350,000 people. I mean, cases probably will not stay that high by the time of elections because the claim now is that they are plateauing. But it's still possible that quite a lot of people will be unable to vote because of that. Uh, I think that because of that, then, I mean, it is reasonable to think about the measures that should be taken regarding this. I also think, though, after the fact, after the election, whoever loses will point to this as like, well, this is why we lost as a way to justify uh, losing or to get around that, uh, saying that people were deprived of their ability to vote. And that's why we had this outcome. I think this is increasingly the case after elections, uh, I think particularly after 2018 onwards, alleging, for example, that, well, there are all these mock-ups with the way it was carried out. And so we would have won except for that. And so I think you have more questioning of the process that's going on. And Donovan, do you think it's about time the government did come out and do this, come up with a system where people with the coronavirus can vote earlier rather than later? Well, they need to come up with something. Um, and the, but the fact of the matter is, I think by the, right now, uh, how this how the situation is going to look and what the rules are going to be by November twenty sixth. Yeah, but uh, you know, versus now, I, there's a, a large amount of flexibility in what could happen. I mean, up to this point, the official numbers show that. Over a quarter of the public has been uh, infected with uh, the coronavirus. And the reality is probably more like somewhere between 35 and 50%, uh, considering that a lot of cases are asymptomatic. So uh, the question is, will they even have quarantines at all at that point? I think that kind of is a more basic fundamental issue that they're going to have to tackle. Um, because once once you get to a point where you have almost 90% of the population has been double vaccinated and you know by then it's entirely possible as we're peaking here that you could realistically estimate that possibly as much as over 50% of the population has already had uh the coronavirus that you know, you might be looking at a situation where maintaining quarantines at all or any of these measures just simply may not make any sense. And I think that's actually a more basic question that the government needs to be asking. But if they're going to keep these quarantines in place or they're going to keep a lot of these uh, limitations in, in place, then yes, they absolutely have to start planning how are they going to deal with that within a voting context. But honestly, I think between now and then, I think they're going to be dealing with much more fundamental pro uh, questions of whether or not people can uh, 
you know, whether or not quarantines will remain in place and whether or not, uh, you know, people have to remain at home because at some point people are just going to have to accept that this is becoming an endemic issue. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and we're going to continue the second half of the show with some more election news from Taiwan this week. And two of the three main Taipei mayoral candidates released policy proposals aimed at wooing the city's pet owners. Now, according to the KMT's Jung Wen An, he plans to work with the private sector to launch standard form contracts for pet health insurance policies and create a city government team to investigate claims of abuse against animals other than cats and dogs. Jung also said that he plans to expand on the city's pet-friendly bus initiative and launch a trial programme offering designated pet carriages during off-peak hours on the Taipei MRT. Meanwhile, the DPP's Chen Shijong says that his pet-related proposals include a plan to open Taiwan's first pet amusement park in Taipei by the end of his first term in office. And the former health minister also said that he wants to improve the quality of the city's 19 dog parks, ensuring that each of them has drinking water. And he also is going to build a long-term care system for older pets. Now, former Taipei Deputy Mayor Vivian Huang didn't put forward any pet platforms, but she did take a dig at the DPP candidate, saying that he probably shouldn't bring his dog to election rallies because he's using it as an electoral prop when he does. So, Brian, of course, they're trying to chasing the pet owners there for votes. I mean, let's start with Jung Wen An. So he's going to work with the private sector to launch a standard form contract for pet health insurance policies, create a city government team to investigate claims of abuse against animals other than cats and dogs, and also extend the pet initiative on the public transport system by having designated pet carriages. Yeah, I do like that as follow-up to uh, the proposal to have a reservation system for buses is to have bus uh, to carriages for animals. And so that's kind of interesting continuity there. Uh, it's also interesting, too, that he did bring up the uh, measures for animals that are not cats and dogs, because this actually is a demand of uh, animal protection groups, that there's too much focus in Taiwanese society from politicians or the general public on only cats and dogs. And that also is affecting other pets. There are other animals out there that are not receiving attention or legal measures or protections as a result. And so that is actually kind of interesting there with regards to that. And Donovan, what do you think of Jung Wen An's pet policies there? Uh, well, it, on one level, I'm really kind of the worst person to ask about this. I have pet allergies. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I'm allergic to dander. But I, I appreciate that he's moving beyond cats and dogs because those are the pets that I could actually possibly own. Um, uh, but fundamentally, what, what I think is, is very, very, there's several things that I find very interesting about a lot of this. Uh, one is that Right now, Taiwan society, there's a lot more pets than there are children. And, you know, increasingly we're seeing Taiwan society where people are using pets or kind of are bringing pets into their, their lives to, I don't know if replace is exactly the right word, but to fulfill uh, certain emotional voids that might have been filled at one point by children. And I think politicians are starting to become more and more aware of this. 
uh, I think also another interesting thing is how Taiwan has changed. Um, you know, I, I remember a time when it was pretty common for the people to, you know, if you you wouldn't have had your your pet spayed or, and if they got pregnant, you just simply, you know, throw the you, know, you throw the puppies or you know whatever the offspring of the the pet was, throw them in a bag and then just chuck them out in the mountain road. It was. You know, I remember seeing that visually um, more than once, and now that's considered extremely uh, unacceptable for good reason. But at one time, this was would have been considered extremely normal. So, so there's kind of two strands here. What is what I'm getting at? One is that you see a progression within Taiwan society where political parties are now see this as an issue with enough traction. To to actually start engaging with the issue, and you also see a situation where that there's kind of an emptiness and a kind of void within society where people can't afford to have children and nurture human families, and they're using pets to kind of replace those. And again this is something that political parties are starting to latch on to. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this uh, going forward. And it'll be interesting to see how this develops uh, as far as, you know, as as Zhang Wanan brings forward, uh, you know, other pets other than cats and dogs, but then how will that run into uh, agricultural laws? Uh, You know, there's a lot of complexity within that. But I do think that we're going to see a lot more strengthening of uh, animal rights kinds of laws. There have been proposals to uh, introduce it into the Constitution. Um, so we're going to see more and more of this uh, as as Taiwan society ages, moves forward, and people just simply can't afford to have children and use this as kind of a proxy. Blimey, he got all philosophical on there, didn't he, Brian? <laughs> really, he did. But, Brian, I mean, would you go to the pet amusement park? Well, I mean, personally, I feel like the resources are better spent, for example, assisting the homeless population in Taipei or uh, people that are in need. But also, I mean, there are issues regarding pets. I mean, that the, there is still the abandonment. The Taipei Zoo recently put out a call for not people not to abandon their pets at the zoo because people think they can bring them to the zoo and people will take care of them. And so those are, I think, more fundamental issues affecting animals. And so we're talking about animal protections. I would like to see more focus on that. But uh, I also did enjoy that Chen Shizhong when he announced that one of the cardboard placards in front of him had a seal because, you know, sure, people are going to bring their pet seal to the pet amusement park. And Donovan, what about in, what about in Taichung? What are, the, what are the candidates talking about via pets there? Not a lot, but there's already a pet amusement park here. Um, so, you know, we're way ahead of Taipei, as always, you know. Um, but uh, it, there hasn't been a, as much talk about it down here as, as far as I've seen. Um, but Taichung is, you know, more of an open city. We don't have uh, so much reliance on the MRT as, say, Taipei does. So public transportation and transporting of pets is less of an issue. Uh, there's a lot more space for people to take pets out into parks and things like that. So I think, and you know, Taichung is a little bit more conservative than Taipei. So I don't see Taichung at this point as it, it, it hasn't reached the level 
uh, you know, compared to Taipei, it hasn't reached that, the level of discussion. But again, a lot of that has to do with the different circumstances of Taichung, whereas we're already better placed to handle pets within society than Taipei, and we're just simply not as reliant on public transportation. So it's, that's kind of to be expected. And I'd just like to add on something Brian mentioned there. When the Taipei Zoo released its list of creatures that have been left at the zoo, chickens were on the list, I believe, Brian. People oh. actually taking chickens to the Taipei Zoo. Yeah, it's actually one of those interesting things. Like, I think uh, particularly non-cat uh, non, non and dog animals, I mean, there are quite a lot of bird owners, and I think it's pretty visible, particularly in a much more traditional part of society. I mean, you have farmers, obviously, raising chickens, but also, I mean, just you have a lot of people have birds walking around, and I find like a lot of older shops will have birds. Um, it's kind of interesting that way, though, because it's been a refrain since 2016. I mean, Tsai Ing-wen visually referenced, for example, animal rights in summer campaign advertisement in 2016, but did not really play this up as much. But it's increasingly a part of politics. And moving on now, we've talked about plagiarism in recent weeks here on Taiwan This Week, but that's been focused on academic papers. But this week we had art plagiarism. In what makes it kind of ironic here is where the art plagiarism actually took, or purportedly took place, I should say, because it was on display outside the offices of the Kaohsiung branch of the Administrative Enforcement Agency, which just happens to be operated under the Ministry of Justice. Now, according to the agency, it's requested a team of independent experts examine plagiarism claims surrounding the 2 million NT public art installation. Now, the third-party experts will be examining a stainless steel art display titled Fair Justice and Harmony by local artist Tsai Wen-Shang. Now, the panel is expected to wrap up some investigation within two weeks and the agency says that if it's found that the artwork was plagiarised it will immediately be removed from public viewing. Now the investigation comes after Tsai was accused of plagiarising a work by a Japanese artist called Oroshi or Typhoon which won the Censor Award at the 2016 Taiwan Ceramics Biennial. However Tsai says that he's frustrated about the accusations and is insisting that true pr- the two projects are completely different in terms of materials, structure and proportions. However as a layperson when it comes to fine art they actually look quite alike to me Brian I don't know if I'm maybe I know nothing about art but they look pretty similar to me mate it's hard to judge sometimes I mean I think sometimes people come up with the same design it's just a sort of convergent that they don't actually deliberately do that but because these are the shapes and forms available or sometimes even just the medium uh, for example software they'll end up creating something that looks kind of similar and so I think in this case I would wait for the assessment but it's definitely the case that in Taiwan I mean historically there's been a lot of uh, IP theft, uh, just a lot of trademarks violated, and particularly regarding public art or uh, the kind of installation art that one sees in urban spaces or uh, even in in kind of like corporate museums and that kind of thing, a lot are copies or mimicries uh, or just replicas, and so it doesn't surprise me that this would actually occur if that is the case. Um, Yeah, I think there's kind of two separate issues going on here. uh, one is uh, there is or historically has been an issue of copying I, I mean there was a point where Taiwan was fame, famous for being the biggest copyright infringer of pretty much everything in the world at one point uh, back in the 1980s and into the early 90s but those people generally left moved into China and then kind of replicated their operations there while Taiwan cracked down and since Taiwan has become a font of original creativity, um, something that I think the Taiwanese can be genuinely very, very proud of, is the amount of creativity that 
comes out of Taiwan. You can walk around your local neighborhood, and you'll just see a lot of originality, a lot of creativity in pretty much any neighborhood, you know, where where people live now in Taiwan, which um, it, there, there's a lot of free expression and creativity within the Taiwanese people. There's a second issue here, which is those who win government bids. And in this case, what you're talking about is someone who's won a government bid. And there's been kind of a nationalization of artistic expression within Taiwan, meaning that more and more, if you want to actually make any money, unlike a lot of other countries where you might appeal to, say, free market sponsors or wealthy patrons or a range of different possibilities, more and more what's happening within Taiwan is that there's a professional class of people within Taiwan now whose sole job it is is to learn how to navigate the government paperwork put forth to get government bids on arts and culture funding. And that's a lot of work, and it's hard. The the paperwork is hard, and it's a lot of work, and it's very risky because if you put in the entire, you know, the amount of work that goes into processing and getting that application done, and you lose the bid to another company, then, you know, you've you've put out a serious amount of, of upfront investment and with zero return. So there's this professional class now that goes out, fulfills these bid requirements, and then gets some kind of art commissioned or done. And at the end of that process, sometimes the actual art is becoming compromised. It's not genuine artistic merit that's being rewarded in this process. It's not genuine uh, creativity, and often it's not the artists themselves. And I don't know if this is the case in this particular one, but it smells like it. In other words, that this, you know, this probably was a bid won by a professional basically a professional person who goes in, enters these kinds of bids, wins the bid, and then they figure out how to deal with the artwork part. And when you're in a situation like that, the actual art suffers, but bureaucratic, uh, you know, people who know how to navigate bureaucracy and fill out paperwork are the ones who end up being rewarded. Uh, I think uh, I would actually push it back a little bit against that. I mean, you still see a lot of IP violations. I mean, you look at clinics, you go to restaurants, a lot of coffee shops, and you see artwork that is just lifted from the internet somewhere. And oftentimes you can see this with regards to pixelization. That's a low-quality version. And this still does occur in public spaces, in government projects. I mean, there's a scandal a while back regarding, for example, an indigenous artist that they just took his work and replicated it in a bunch of, like, 12 offices, and then it was found out years later, and that created trouble. And I think one of those offices was on, like, the street where I live. Uh, but then even just, like, coming over and taking the the airport express, the Taran Express, there's a, a sign in the bathroom that says, I love Paris. And I'm pretty sure that is taken from somewhere because that cannot be just <laughs> from Taiwan. And so I think this issue is still quite rampant. 
Uh, and so this is possibly, in this case, it's not very clear. I mean, there's definitely much more attention to, uh, for example, IP protections or originality and so forth. But I mean, one does still see this kind of plagiarism that occurs, or even just lifting, or of ideas without attribution. I mean, there's a scandal a while ago, too, regarding, for example, a Taiwanese artist who had a Tico-sponsored ad in a subway state, uh, car in New York City, which also raised questions, why do you spend so much money on ads in just one subway car? And she used elements of the artwork that were from, for example, clip art, or not clip art, but just, you know, stock images, rather than something I created herself. And this was in Times Square, displaying and representing the country, and that created a scandal. So this still does occur. I, I, I don't think you're really pushing back at anything I said. Um, because, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely right, Brian, on, on all of those things. Those things absolutely occur. Um, but I, my point was, is that when you get to a government bid situation where you put someone, someone, so many resources into, um, you know, into the process of getting the government contract in the first place, then that doubly increases the incentives in a lot of ways for people to cut down on the resources or time or effort that's put into the artistic side. Now, when you're taken out of that context, then you're dealing not just with those, you know, those with those incentives, you're also dealing with basic laziness and so on and so forth. Um, and those things definitely exist, and this is, has been a, a problem that, that has gone back quite a ways. I, but I do remember a time when Taiwan was famous primarily for copying stuff, and I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that Taiwan... You know, there's still a lot of copying going on, um, it, but the I think you know the days when Taiwan was famous for whole scale copying of you know Apple computers down to the smallest components and then selling them for half the price. Those days are long over. Um, but yes, it still remains a problem within society, and of course, you're seeing this play play out in the elections and a lot of you know in the plagiarism of theses and that kind of thing. And a lot of academics have reached out to me privately and said that has been a rampant problem for a long time. Um, so, but the thing is, is I do think that the trend is moving against uh, copying in Taiwan, and I think that that comparatively speaking. It's far less of a problem than it used to be, but that the way that government bids work, it actually creates an incentive uh, outside of a lot of the incentives that that are being created within society, pushing back against uh, copying. It's creating some incentives to be. I won't say copy because there will be within within the bid requirements there will be provisions against direct copying, but putting less originality and less effort into the art that wins the bid, I think there's a, a there's a lot of incentive there to actually reduce the creativity and potentially uh, use copying to fill the bid requirements. And of course, Brian, we had Donovan being original there, accompanied by the garbage truck. 
yeah, yeah there's that. Lovely art, lovely piece of work, Donovan, there. <laughs> yes, well, you know, that's an original song uh, that, that was not copied by any, you know, European classical artist in any way, shape, or form. Um, and I'm sure, though, they won the, the government requirement uh, for this bid to produce that music, and it's definitely based on local musical traditions. And before we go this week, while illegal structures in Taiwan are pretty commonplace and don't turn that many heads now, a chap, a rather cheeky chap, I should say, in Zhanghua City this week, maybe took it a bit too far after building one on the sidewalk. Now, the structure was a single-storey large edifice built on a sidewalk at a junction, and it attracted considerable press attention for the sheer audacity, I guess I should say, due to, in part, it being very, very white, and the other being, well where it was located. Now, pictures of it were pretty much plastered everywhere and public opinion was hardly divided on the issue, that being first laughter and then outrage. And Donovan, of course, this was in Zhanghua near you. What did you make of this rather um, white edifice built on this <laughs> sidewalk? Well, I mean, I think, oh, like a lot of people, like, uh, you know, uh, there was a bit of humor uh, to be had with this. I mean, it, you know, it, normally when people do illegal structures, they're kind of anonymous, kind of out of sight because they're on the top of buildings. Uh, but, but this person uh, just simply went out and said, okay, I'm just simply going to take over the sidewalk. And there was actually benches built out on, you know, by the sidewalk for pedestrians, and they were either disappeared and, and destroyed or just simply swallowed up within the structure. It was not entirely clear from any of the reporting or from the visuals. But it was uh, definitely completely audacious. And what was quite amusing about this uh, story is the, the person that did this um, basically then later came out to the press and said, oh, uh, oh, I just didn't understand the way the law works. When it was so manifestly obvious that you, and this is a fairly large structure built right out on the sidewalk, covering a very obvious and clear uh, pedestrian sidewalk, uh, you know, it was it was just so wildly audacious. And then this person was like, "Oh, I just didn't understand the law." Um, and then, because the press attention to this was so intense, uh, you know, the person basically had to come out to the press and back down and tear it down. But the Zhanghua city mayor came out and said, uh, we're still going to press charges against you, sorry, even though you, you took this down yourself. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the thing is, there was actually a time, you know, within living memory, when people could possibly have gotten away with this by simply just, some, you know, lining someone's pockets. But you just can't do that now. Yeah, I think part of it's social media and increased media exposure. So this kind of thing becomes viral and it goes off and people pay attention. And then politicians also then are incentivized to take actions. So I think that's one difference. But I mean, oftentimes it's kind of interesting because there's so much illegality regarding buildings or in restaurants. You see these illegal, for example, ventilation and that's enormous and just kind of goes out somewhere. Uh, pipes that you're just like, oh, this does not look logical. This looks a little bit dangerous and probably it's not legal. But then it is just a part of life and it goes on. But then, uh, I mean, there's also all these 
uh, structures on roofs, for example. I mean, if the police really want to systematically map them out in district to district, that is definitely possible. But it just goes by. And I think in this case, somehow it just crossed the norm in terms of just being too ostentatious. And I think that's why there was such a strong reaction. Anyway, that's all. We'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.